Good morning. I was blown away last week just hearing stories of uh, different women that came out to participate, all the women that served in various ways for the Women's Day, just blown away by how God moved and how God used the church here to, to make an impact and to really represent um, the, the women's ministry really well. And so I just want to give one more round of applause for Women's Day. I'm sure we'll do some thank yous at another point. But uh, if you have a Bible, um, we're going to be in the book of Matthew today. But my question to you is this. I know what my question is. Are you ready to hear the greatest sermon ever preached? Some of you are like, uh, we need to talk. (laughs) But are you ready to hear the greatest sermon ever preached? We're going to hear a little bit of that today. We're going to talk over the next couple weeks about suffering. We're going to cover hatred. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about power about life, about death, about heaven and hell. We're going to talk about fake religion, marriage, divorce, greed, stress, anxiety, conflict resolution, integrity, vengeance, prayer, fasting, judgment, and choices. Sounds pretty epic, huh? Covering a lot of ground. You know, we could talk for hours on each of these subjects. And in fact, if you go down to the the local coffee shop, you can find people to pontificate with, to talk and to to chew on these words and opinions and to go back and forth and say, "I I think this is the right value to have when it comes to this. I think this is the value we should have towards this and that. There's something called the ethosphere, right? We've heard of the ecosphere, but the ethosphere is, you know, let's talk about values and what does the world say about values? You know, we have many ways to get information and opinions on all these topics. And we do. Our music, our movies, our TV shows, our books, our friends, advertisements are saturated with opinions about what we're supposed to care about and what we're supposed to value. You know, Jesus enters into our lives and entered into the first century saying, okay, these are the things that you've heard. These are the opinions in the world around us but I'm here to promote and to bring about a greater value system. He came in to say there's a better way to do things. He entered into a world full of opinions on the things that matter, and he sees that, and through his teaching, he turns that world upside down. Nowhere is this more clear in his teachings than in the largest sermon ever known to be recorded by Jesus, known as the Sermon on the Mount. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're, uh, the, the series that we're going through is called The World Turned Upside Down. That's what Jesus came to do, a little Hamilton reference for you. The world turned upside down. But Jesus came in to flip the script, to turn the world upside down about true values. And we see this most clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, which is known, by the way, as the greatest sermon ever preached. It's not what I'm sharing today. It's the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. For some of you, you're still on edge. Like, did he really just say that? But we're going to be looking over the next five weeks at the Sermon on the Mount, diving into what does God's Word say about the value system we're meant to be clinging to. The Sermon on the Mount is known as the Magna Carta of the Kingdom of God. What does God really, really value? What is His heart? It serves as the greatest work of lived-out theology known to man. It really is a representation of of the world turned upside down. 
What's crazy about the Sermon on the Mount is we'll look at Jesus' teaching, which, by the way, even if you're not religious, you're familiar with bits and pieces of the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek comes from that, right? Uh, go, go the extra mile. If you've ever heard that phrase, that comes from the Sermon on the Mount. The teachings of Jesus are still revolutionary and still turning the world upside down today. Which, it's a little bit crazy to think, how could teaching that's 2,000 years old turn the world upside down again? Over and over and over again. It's because we have this way of the world that we're drawn to, that we, we want to live by. And Jesus is continually turning that upside down, revolutionizing what we believe and what we value. You know, I experienced this in my life. When I come, uh, even after being a, a Christian for over 15 years, as I'm diving into the scriptures, diving into the teachings of Jesus, I see laid bare that my values don't align. And I've got to change. I've got to let Jesus continually enter into my world and turn it upside down. So my hope during this series is that we do the same, that we let Jesus enter into our lives, that we allow ourselves to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, to be inspired by the heart of God and say, I want my values to match his. I want to know God better and I want him to turn my perspective upside down, to bring about a new angle. You know, what a God we serve that his teachings continually can turn our lives upside down. Let's pray before we dive into a little bit more. Father God, I'm so grateful for your kingdom, so grateful for your teachings, God. You know what we need, as was shared about today, and you know when we need it. God, and you call us to a uh, radical trust in you. But God, you give us so many reasons to trust in you. I pray that through that trust, God, we can uh, adopt the principles of your world, your kingdom, and apply them into our lives, and that we can be a distinct people representing you wherever we go, being beacons of light to every community that we enter into. God, we love you. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's talk about our series coming up. This, uh, this Sunday, today, live, right here, right now, we're going to talk about world values. We're going to talk about upside down. Next week, the law of Moses, inside out. Okay, not just having the outward appearance of looking good, but what is the, what's really going on in the heart? And we see that in the Sermon on the Mount. Then on the 27th, we're going to talk about the spiritual disciplines, prayer and fasting and those things. Outside help. Hey, we need some outside help in our pursuit. Some of these names, bear with me, a little bit of a stretch, but I'm, I'm trying to keep it going, right? Then holiness, sunny side, no, right side up. Sorry, I'm a little hungry. Uh, holiness, right side up, that I want to be righteous before God. And then we're going to conclude with decisions, making decisions inside right. I want my inside to be in the, in the right place, right? I, I want the, the fruit of my life to match what's going on internally in my walk with God. So that's our series. The cool thing is, what does that end with on the 17th? Easter. You were like, I don't know what's happening on the 17th. April 17th is Easter. And we're leading into that. What a revolutionary concept that Jesus, not just through his teachings, but through his sacrifice, turned the world upside down. And so this is our kind of journey towards Easter together as a church. And I'm excited to talk about all the ways that Jesus desires to turn things upside down. But before we get in and start with the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll get to, I promise. But before we do that, let's talk about the world just a little bit. All right? What in the world? It's not a picture of Anna, but it could be. Anna loves to say this. Our two-year-old loves to say, what in the world? When she sees something out of, out of the ordinary, right? And we can experience this sometimes when we look around at our world. Or maybe you've grown up in church and you've, you've listened to sermons where people say, beware of the world. Don't let the world enter into your life. 
watch out for the world. And you're like, what's, what's so bad about the world? Maybe some of you have lived kind of in the world, adopting worldly principles, and you're like, amen, get me out of this. I'm so grateful to be part of the kingdom. But sometimes we can, we can live our life and say, okay, we don't want to villainize the world around us. We don't want to villainize the people around us. So when the Bible speaks to the world, when we talk about the world turned upside down, what are we really talking about? Let's start with that. What is the world? That says what in the world, but for all intents and purposes, we're asking the question, what is the world? And is it, is it right for us to watch out for the world, to be, to be uh, concerned with the influence of the world around us? I believe it is because Jesus teaches that it is. Here's some things that Jesus says about the world. In Luke 9, he says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self? To, to adopt all the principles, to gain the world, to gain acceptance in the world around us, and yet lose yourself. Jesus also told the disciples in John, he says, As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. He says, If you're an apprentice of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you don't belong in this world. And then he also said, now a time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Jesus recognized that, that Satan, his enemy, had dominion in the world around us. And again, some of us have seen that in the, in the darkness in the world around us. But John, in one of his letters, says this. John, one of the uh, followers of Jesus, one of the original 12 apostles, says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So the New Testament authors say, beware of the world around us. And rightly so, because there's an influence that can enter into our lives. But again, what is it talking about? Is it don't love the world? Okay, I shouldn't, I shouldn't like the trees around me. I shouldn't like Kennywood or, you know, the world around me or the people around me. That's an amusement park if you're unfamiliar. Um, like, who is Kenny Wood? <laughs> and I haven't met him yet. But are we, are we meant to love and engage in the world around us? Of course. So what on earth, no pun intended, is the Bible talking about when it says the world? It's, it's, uh, the, the Greek word is cosmos in the scriptures when it talks about the world. And that's used to literally the space, the earth. It's talking about um, the world in terms of the people. Think about this passage, right? God so loved the world... So God says, hey, don't love, Jesus says, don't love the world. Don't, don't engage in the world. Don't, don't be led by the world. But he also says, God so loves the world, cosmos, that he gave his one and only son. So you might be like, okay, you're putting a lot of questions out there. What actually is the world? Well, oftentimes when Jesus or the New Testament authors are talking about the world, they're talking about the uh, disordered desires within our culture that infiltrate into the, the Christian principles that we're meant to hold on to. And of course, we're meant to love the people of the world. God so loved the world, talking about creation and people and one another. We're meant to engage and love one another and be connected to one another, not just in the church, but of course, all around us. But we're also meant to be distinct, to recognize that there's an influence trying to work its way into our lives. John Mark Comer, one of my uh, favorite authors, says this, the world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. I'll read that one more time. Chew on it just a little bit, right? The world is a system of ideas, values, 
morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and a redefinition of good and evil. Now, let me summarize that just a little bit. A socially driven definition of values that are different than God's values. Choosing the world or society's values over God's values. That's the world and the worldly influence we're supposed to be fighting against. Right? Our, our battle is not against the people. It's not against flesh and blood. But there is cultural norms that are accepted in our world around us that we need to be resistant to. And say we are not of the world, but we're a people of a different kingdom. You follow that? Does that make sense? Okay, that's what we're talking about with the world. It's not that, oh man, the world is so messed up. By the way, the world, I believe, is not any more messed up today than it was yesterday or before or 10 years ago or 20 years or 100 years. Each generation kind of thinks that the next generation is the worst version of the world, but that's been happening for millennia, right? And, and things were not, you know, any more messed up today than they were in Rome at this time, right? It's all, it's, some of it's all relative, but the world has always been fallen since the fall of man. And so we are meant to say, oh, not just, oh, this culture or this generation, or if we only did this or that. We know we have to say, you know what? I want to cling to the principles of God no matter what's going on in the world around me. By the way, the world does influence us. It, it's kind of a, a uh, social scientists have, have looked at this, and there's kind of a phenomenon known as the social contagion. And it's basically, have you ever yawned? and other people around you yawn. Yeah. There's no reason except this idea of a social contagion affecting the people around you. And basically, we are affected by those people around us. One of you almost just yawned just now, just talking about yawning, right? That, that happens. There's this social contagion that occurs. Dr. Paul Marsden says that sociocultural phenomena can spread through and leap between populations more like outbreaks of measles or chickenpox than through a process of rational choices. Basically, societal norms are spread more like a disease than they do through rational decision. Which means we're highly influential, or influenceable, and influential, I suppose, but also we're, we're easily influenced. And you're like, no, I'm not. But even you saying, no, I'm not, is an influence by you wanting to not be uh, moved by a, a culture of rebellion that you've adopted, right? It's just our nature. And there's empirical research that, that proves all that. I won't dive into all of that. But basically, the world around us has an impact, and we're meant to resist it. That, that summarizes that whole introduction, right? We're meant to be different than the world around us. Hopefully, that's not news to you, but I know that I need a reminder because I like to fit in. <laughs> I like to look like things around me. Maybe not with everybody, but I, wanna, I want that, that group. Okay, I want to fit in with this. I want to be accepted. It's a human desire, and a God-given desire, by the way, to be accepted. But let us long to be accepted and acceptable in our Father's eyes rather than the world around us. So Jesus, John, social scientists, they, they all agree that we're influenced by the world. Even the Buddha says, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not advertising for this, but, but the Buddha says, that one of the uh, key, uh, the, I think it's 39 highest blessings, number one is don't uh, entertain the company of fools. Basically, you're influenced by the people that you surround yourself with. So the whole world outside of Christianity says you are going to be influenced by those around you. And Jesus stepped in and said, so rather be influenced by these things instead. Right? And so that leads us to Jesus. Jesus didn't say avoid the world. He says turn the world upside down 
through how you live and holding to my teachings and my values. So with all that, we're going to dive into the Sermon on the Mount. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. You guys still with me? And you're like, okay, just, just get to the Bible for crying out loud, all right? None of this Buddha stuff, social scientists, move on. Amen. Let's do that. Let's dive into God's word together. We're going to talk today about eight attitudes that are highly valued by God. Eight attitudes highly valued by God. Some of you are like, eight points, mercy. No, mercy is one of them. But no, we're not going to, uh, to spend a lot of time on this because we're familiar with it. But I want to remind us of the values of God. You know, Jesus, this is the kickoff to his ministry. This is the beginning. People at this time don't, don't know quite who he is, don't fully trust him. But this is Jesus' inaugural sermon that he gives. And, and he actually gives it on the side of a mountain. And bear with me just a second. I'm going to try something, all right? You guys still hear me? scriptures in front of you. So Jesus starts not by saying, this is where all the power is. This is all the stuff we can do. This is going to be incredible. What he starts off by saying is, get your heart humbled before God. Adopt his principles instead. So let's break this down just a little bit, all right? Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Basically, Jesus starts off by one of the most important principles of his kingdom is that we need to see our daily need for God. We've got to be poor in spirit. We've got to recognize that without God, we're impoverished. We can't do it without God. We live in a world, by the way, that tries to erase the existence of God. 
Basically, the, the point of the world is not to need anything, and especially not to need God. And God says, no, no, the most important thing is to know and to live knowing that you need me. He's not an addition to our lives. He is the lifeblood of our lives, and we need him. We've got to be willing to be poor in spirit. Why? Because that's who God's kingdom belongs to. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, I think this can be interpreted two different ways. I think just in general, the idea of mourning, experiencing loss, those are not the people that we think are blessed. But God says they're blessed. Why? Because they will experience comfort. They will be comforted. But a lot of times in, in Scripture, we see mourning uh, attached to a realization or seeing your sin, your own sin, clearly. We see Jesus mourning about the state of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I weep for you, I mourn for you. And so uh, a lot of Bible scholars think that this isn't purely about mourning through loss, but mourning by seeing your own sin, your own faults, clearly. This is counterintuitive, right? Usually when I'm starting to see things in my character I don't like, I want to seek comfort elsewhere. I don't want to look more at what's wrong. I don't want to mourn about my character or my defaults or my sin. But the Bible says, actually, if you go deeper into it, if you're willing to see things as they really are, you will experience comfort. We, we spend our life, I spend my life trying to avoid shame. And Jesus actually says, not, not, not shame in terms of a trap, but if you'll have the appropriate guilt for your sin, that will actually lead you to appropriate comfort, to greater comfort. God is described as the God of all comfort in 1 Corinthians. And we'll see that when we're willing to face reality about ourselves and our need for him. Um, the third thing Jesus says, blessed are those who are meek. Now, meek is a funny word because it rhymes with the word weak. And so, not, not just because of that, but it's associated with weakness. Blessed are those who are weak. You might know this, but meekness is not a, a timid or mild temperament but is a self-restrained temperament. It's used about a horse, a wild horse, being bridled, being brought under control. Right? And so meekness is strength under constraint. The world sees our restraint as Christians or sees restraining how you feel as weakness. Right? That, that I, I should do what I want. If I'm not doing what I want, I'm, going, I'm, I'm weak. You're weak. You're giving in to, to society. You know, whatever people are telling you to do, you're weak. But actually, strength is found in self-control. Is it working? Not working? Did it die? Okay, sounds good. Sorry, people at home. If you're listening to the podcast, welcome. Um, if, you're, if you just switch from the YouTube to the podcast, amen. Uh, wow, I can say whatever I want now. We're not, we're not live. Just, just kidding. Uh, but blessed are those who are meek. Again, Jesus is flipping things upside down and saying it's not about your display of power. It's about your display of self-restraint. W.K. Hope says self-discipline is when your conscience tells you to do something and you don't talk back. When, when something tells you you should do this or rather you shouldn't do this and you don't talk back. We would call that the voice of the Holy Spirit and listening to the Holy Spirit and being self-controlled. But that embedded in that is a trust in God that God will advocate for me. Because he says, blessed are those who are meek for they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the blessings here on earth. Inheritance belongs to a child. If we're willing to be meek, we're imitating our Father, God, because He has power constraint. 
he constrains his own power. Jesus at the cross constrained and was meek. And none of us would call that weakness. We would see his great strength at the cross. Number four, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're going to be blessed. They're going to be exceedingly happy because they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Basically, this just means what do you want? Is it your desire to be right in God's eyes? Does that drive you like a hunger? And by the way, hunger does drive us. One time when I was maybe 22, me and a friend, we decided to go camping. And we were like, okay, we're going to do it, you know, uh, Survivor Man style. And we each picked three items to go into the woods for two days, three nights. We're going to hunt for our food and we're going to live off the land. I've never hunted for anything in my life. Um, and we're like, we're going to do it. And we went into the woods and we're, we're hunting. At one point, we're chasing down a squirrel with a spear that we made. By the way, I don't know what we would do if we got said squirrel. We did not. We didn't even come close. But we're chasing down a squirrel. And we just got so hungry. We're like, what were we thinking? We found some frogs. And that was our dinner. Some frog legs. Anyway. But when you're hungry, you're driven to do things that you wouldn't normally do, Right? And if we're hungering for ourselves and for self-satisfaction, we're going to lead, it's going to lead to compromise. But if we're hungering for righteousness, it's going to lead us in a different direction than we would normally go. We as Christians are meant to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The world seeks, to, uh, seeks change to benefit self. We as Christians must seek transformation to become like Christ. To long for what is right in God's eyes. Also attached to this, and I think this gets missed sometimes, but hungering and thirsting for righteousness means you don't have it. I think sometimes we think, okay, Christianity is about being righteous, being righteous. Sometimes it's recognizing, I don't have it. I'm hungry. I need it. And we can think, okay, I, I would be a better Christian if I was doing this better or doing that better. And that's, there, there's truth to that. We're meant to repent and grow and all this stuff. But I love this passage personally because it, it implies that someone is devoid of of righteousness, and yet can still be blessed, can still be filled, because they're longing for the right thing. So just a side note, sometimes you might be going through something where you feel, you know what, I'm missing it. I'm missing the mark left and right. There's no way I can experience God's blessing or be blessed or do this or do that. But actually that, that state of hungering, if, you, if, you, if, you, if that leads you towards wanting righteousness, wanting again means you don't have it, but if you desire it and want it, the, the actions are going to follow, but, but take some hope knowing that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are devoid of it. Why? Because they're going to be filled, filled with the Holy Spirit's transforming power. Blessed are the merciful, because they will be shown mercy. So this one's pretty obvious, but we're meant to be merciful people. The world seeks to inflict pain as revenge on the guilty, to hold on while it eats away at you. But as Christians, we're meant to show mercy to others as God has shown to us. It's one of the only things in Scripture, by the way, that's, that's conditional, connected to grace. That if we don't show mercy, we're not going to receive God's mercy. God takes this seriously. We will receive mercy when we are willing to be merciful. And how sweet is it to receive mercy? Have you ever blown it? Looked into someone's eyes? Someone's like, yeah, I've blown it. Looked into someone's eyes? shared what you did, they look at you and say, I forgive you. It melts you. I remember, um, maybe it was two years ago, talking to a friend where I'd really hurt him. I had, I, it, was, it was an accident. I had shared some things, but it, it affected his, his life probably for, for years as a result. 
because uh, I, was, I was loose with my lips and was talking about something I shouldn't be talking about. And I had to call him and tell him what I shared. And I was like, it's over. We're not going to be friends anymore. And, and, I, and I don't deserve, I don't des- deserve mercy. If he's mad at me for the rest of his life, that's completely understandable. And I shared with him and shared kind of, hey, I said this and that led to this and this. And he connected some dots and he was quiet and said, hey, I forgive you. I'm like walking around Construction Junction, uh, like Point Breeze. That was where I used to talk on the phone. I just started like weeping in Construction Junction and just, just knowing that I was being given mercy when I didn't deserve a lick of it. There's something about that. And that's what we experience in God when we're willing to be merciful people. It's amazing. The world turned upside down. It's counterintuitive. We want to hold on because that's what we think will, will give us control over a situation. Being merciful feels like we're giving up control. But actually, when we're not merciful, that's going to control us and eat away at us. And so God says, let's turn that upside down and be merciful people. The pure in heart. If we strive to keep our hearts free from the stains of the world, bitterness and hatred, things like that, our heart will be pure. We can be living in the world but not have our our purity of of, uh, perspective destroyed. Josiah Saunders and I were talking about this recently, that when we experience kind of an impurity of heart, it's going to jade our view, and we're going to see things in a particular way. And what does this passage say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But if if my heart's not pure, if I'm all over the place, I'm going to miss God on a regular basis. I'm going to miss God working in my life. When our hearts are impure, we don't see God. We don't see God in the fellowship at church. We don't see God in our relationships. We don't see the godly miracles that are actually occurring in our lives. We're not going to see God and his desire for us. So we've got to be willing to be pure in heart, to bring, to bring the stuff to the surface that's adulterating our heart and keeping us away from God. Then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. You know, peace is so needed and yet so overhyped in our world, right? We love, hey, peace. I don't know why I do this, but if I see someone crossing, if I'm crossing the street, I see a car, just flash on the peace sign. Hey, again, I, yeah, live long and prosper. Sure, you can do that too. But, but yeah, I, I, peace, we, we just like the idea of peace. But this has to be a peacemaker, <laughs> Which is different than just like, I like peace, a.k.a. I don't like conflict. Actually, to be a peacemaker means you have to be willing to fight for it. Peacemakers are willing to cause some conflict to bring about the peace that's needed. A peacemaker is not passive. A peacemaker makes a decision to make peace. It doesn't just happen. Jesus was a peacemaker. If you look at his life, he was willing to cause conflict for the sake of peace. To be a peacemaker requires a personal resolve, a willingness to fight for unity and reconciliation, to see your fault and to share truthfully with others. That's what it takes to make peace. It's not just, hey, I'm making peace, you wronged me, you need to apologize. It's recognizing the lack of peace even in your own heart and acknowledging that. A great quote by Francis Chan says, the scriptures teach that our impact on the world is directly tied to the unity we display. As Christians, our impact on the world is directly tied to the unity we display. I have not been going with the slides. I apologize. Let me catch up just a little bit. All right. Lastly, the persecuted. Oh, by the way, when you're a peacemaker, you're doing the work of God. They're going to be children of God. God is the greatest peacemaker we know, and we're imitating him when we're peacemakers. 
And then lastly, the persecuted. Our ways are, are misunderstood, insulted, and ridiculed by the world around us. The world around us will not allow us to freely live without some form of retaliation. By the way, I pray that it's for the right reasons. This says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, not for judgmentalism, not for hypocrisy, not for this or that. we got to make sure that our persecution isn't based on our sin, but on our righteousness, right? In fact, in uh, 2 Timothy 3, it says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Key phrase there is godly life, that we experience that pushback. Sometimes we think, if I can just live uh, right enough, if I can just be a good enough, cool enough Christian, if I can do it a certain way, I won't offend anybody. Church, this is an impossibility. Because Jesus did everything right. And he offended quite a few people, right? And so we, we got to kind of let that go and be okay with causing some ripples. But again, it's got to be for the right reasons. We got to recognize that, that what I believe is offensive. We believe that God raises the dead. We believe that our actions affect our eternal destiny. We believe that what God says is right and wrong matter more than what society says or our own opinion. We believe that sacrificial love is enough uh, motivation to live sacrificially. And we believe that everyone else should believe what we do. I think that's the most offensive part of what we believe. I genuinely believe that everybody else I interact with should believe what I believe. That sounds so arrogant, right? But if I've been freed by Jesus, if I've experienced his grace, how could I not think that about everyone I interact with? That man, you need to believe what I believe. That is naturally going to be offensive. But if I don't believe that, something needs to change about my belief system. Because I've staked everything on the belief that what I believe is the, the best way to live both here and eternally. And so we've got to, to be okay with being holy. Not holier than thou. Sometimes we're so afraid of being holier than thou that we're, we stop living holy. <laughs> we got to be willing to be holy people. It says, by the way, that if we're willing to be persecuted, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to us. God's kingdom is a safe place for those that experience persecution. This point is so important that Jesus expands on it. He doesn't just say, okay, blessed, you know, just one line. He adds to it. Hey, if you're insulted because of me, take heart. You're in good company. All the OT prophets, they can relate. And great will your reward in heaven be. The one kingdom might reject you. You have a home in God's kingdom. The one kingdom might reject you. You have a home in God's kingdom. So Jesus lays out, this is his introduction to his sermon. He goes, these are the principles that we are meant to live by. And then he concludes this kind of introduction with, with two distinct realities. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. He says, but if you lose your saltiness, you're not going to be good for the purpose that you were designed for. If you lose your saltiness, and, and salt at this time it, uh, basically it, it could be very flavorful or it could lose its flavorful effect, right? It could become not distinct. And if that were the case, its purpose is withheld. And of course, salt is also a preservative and there's this tie into eternity and that's pretty cool because you're meant to be the salt of the earth. You're meant to be a distinct people. Don't lose that by trying to blend into the world around you. And he adds to that with the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do you light a lamp and stick it under a bowl. 
No, rather you put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before people that they may see your good deeds and worship your Father in heaven. This is what Jesus says about us. We are meant to be a distinct people. We are meant to stand out, meant to look different, meant to feel different. Sometimes we resist this. If you spend time online and you look at other people's lives, you mean, I want what they have. I don't want to be different. I don't want to be distinct. This looks so nice. And you're only getting one side of the, the, the puzzle there, but we can, we can want what we don't have rather than recognizing that we're meant to be distinct, meant to be different. We've got to accept that to live an upside-down life means that we must be a distinct people. We've got to be willing to stand out, be willing to not blend in. You know, today there's kind of two, two practicals or two things to, to hang on to. And one, you can't see it here, but it says we're meant to embody the attitudes of the kingdom of God. So any of these attitudes that stand out to you, if you're like, man, I need to be a little more weak. I need to be a little more poor in spirit. I need to hunger a little bit more for righteousness. Pick one and cling to it and work on it. Go after that principle. Allow Jesus to turn your world upside down. But these things don't come naturally. Jesus isn't saying this just to one person. He's saying it to a whole crowd of people, which means what? We need each other. We're going to hear this over and over again in the next few sermons. We need each other. Who is helping you live an upside-down life? If you can't answer that immediately, something must change. Who is helping you live an upside-down life? If you can't answer that question, something needs to change. Why? Because we all need help. We're all poor in spirit. We're all hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We need help. And we've got to fight for that. Sometimes that means letting someone in. Sometimes that means recognizing, you know what? Uh, there's a perspective I might be missing. Humbling ourselves. But man, oh man, let's open our hearts up and embody the attitudes of the kingdom together. When we do that, God is going to be glorified. And the last thing is just embrace the distinction. We're meant to stand out. We're meant to be different. From the beginning of time, God has called light out of darkness. Darkness covered the world. It was filled with water and darkness, and water represented the chaos of the world around us. Right? And what did God said? say? Let there be light. Brothers and sisters, this is what light looks like. This is what the blessings look like. And I say the same thing to us this morning. Let there be light. Let us be a distinct community, and let's turn this world upside down. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Yeah.